The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. highlights or 
as Bishop Sanborn would probably call them, the lowlights of the last uh, five to, to ten years. For those of you who've never listened to us before, um, our show is called Restoration Radio. We attempt to look at philosophy, theology, and other parts of culture and religion through a traditional Catholic viewpoint. And this show is part two um, of a, a look at the, the non-pontificate of Benedict XVI, and this would be spanning the years 2005 through 2013. Um, so we'll get right into it. Uh, Your Excellency, in 2005, we had a speech that the new, uh, the new claimant to the papacy gave to the Curia on hermeneutics. Now, what does this word mean, and what did that speech mean? Well, hermeneutics is from a Greek word, which simply means interpretation, and this is one more case in which modernists uh, use big words to say something very simple, and they therefore attract a certain attention and a certain respect from the average person who thinks that they're very well educated because they're using the word hermeneutics instead of interpretation. Uh, so it just means interpretation and your method of interpretation. And the speech that he gave in 2005 was very significant because it was the first sign of an admission that Vatican II had gone bad, that things are not going well. And uh, he mentioned that the, the, you know, there's been a lot of negative effect of Vatican II. And it, 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 he wants to repair Vatican II by showing that it is uh, in continuity with the past, that it is not a rupture. Because he knows, and I've said this many, many times, but they know it better than I do, and he knows it better than I do, that rupture, historically, is the death of Vatican II. If it is considered rupture by generations that are to come and who study it with more objectivity than we do, if they say, oh, this is rupture, it is dead it is dead in the water. It has absolutely no validity or legitimacy at all. And I think Ratzinger understanding that was out to, as I said in, in an article, to save his baby. That is, to save Vatican II from this ultimate condemnation of history. And so he, he said to the Curia uh, in 2005 that we need to have the hermeneutic of continuity, that is the interpretation of continuity, that is where we are understanding Vatican II as something that is in conformity with, or, well, I shouldn't, what they consider to be in conformity with tradition and not a rupture with tradition. And, and I put a qualifier on that because their idea of continuity is not our idea of continuity. Uh, their idea of continuity is that it, there is a, a true change and evolution that takes place, but there is a certain uh, continuity of organization. There is a, uh, uh, essentially an evolution that is not too uh, difficult to swallow, uh, whereas the rupture people like Hans Kung and people like that would, would say, well, let's do away with the past and completely and uh, simply... Uh, go on with the future. And so he, he is distancing himself from that approach in order to save Vatican II. 
So it was a very, very significant speech. I had never seen anything like that from anybody that was walking around the Vatican buildings, has, has been walking around the Vatican buildings since 1960. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a, just a milestone uh, of a speech, and really his whole, uh, his, his tenure in those buildings uh, if for the past uh, seven years or so uh, has been really, a, that has been the main theme of it, it, or at least one of the main themes is, is to save Vatican II by proposing that it is something continuous uh, with tradition, and it, it's very much linked up with his with his overtures to the SSPX, the Society of St. Pius X. I would agree with that, too, that it's, it's, if you wanted to find a, a theme, an overarching theme that he keeps on sounding throughout all of his speeches, it's that. It's that uh, we have to look at Vatican II with uh, the eyes of, of uh, something that is uh, continuous with the past, and we can't adopt the... Uh, idea that was very common in the interpretation of Vatican II after the Council and that continued to be common and then sort of the, the, the paradigm for looking at what went on in the church, that uh, it was something new and something that essentially was discontinuous with the past, that it was a, a new springtime for uh, a new vision of the church and a new vision of Catholic doctrine and theology and uh, discipline. It keeps on coming up time and time again in uh, his uh, speeches. Um, well, uh, Nicholas Wansbutter here parachuting in, uh, Your Excellency and Father. Uh, the, the thought that came to my mind uh, as um, uh, the two of you were giving that description is when we think of the uh, legacy of uh, Ratzinger slash Benedict XVI, to me, this is uh, one of the most uh, important parts in that it's what's made him the most dangerous because the uh, this hermeneutic of continuity is what has allowed um, a lot of traditional Catholics to be kind of hoodwinked and think, oh, th this is uh, some you know, good traditional individual who's bringing the church back away from Vatican II or... In, towards this so-called traditional interpretation of Vatican II. Uh, yes, well, that, that is the danger. Uh, but uh, by raising the issue of continuity versus rupture, he actually got people, I think, to think about the question. And it's very interesting. You find uh, people who are in what we would call the mainstream of the post-Vatican II Church, uh, writers who uh, say, well, show us the continuity. We don't see the continuity. That we, 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 see, uh, we see a rupture here uh, instead. And indeed, he's, he's been challenged on that uh, uh, a number of times. Yes, Monsignor Garadini uh, actually put a set of questions to him to answer, and that was one of them. Where is the continuity? And uh, it's like a unicorn. You know, there's this, this interpretation of Vatican II that is uh, in, in continuity with the previous teaching of the Catholic Church, and uh, he never comes up with it. Yet it is an agonizing issue for the Society of St. Pius X. They had discussions for years over that very question. 
Now, what is the purpose of the Roman pontiff except to settle theological disputes? And if he could settle this whole thing that is going on, this whole discussion about what the interpretation of Vatican II is, why doesn't he do it? Does he have some secret formula whereby it shows continuity, that you can achieve continuity between the condemnation of religious liberty as an insanity <laughs> by Pius X and then its canonization as, as a, a, a right that, that derives from revelation itself uh, that we find in Vatican II? I mean, you would have to be pretty smart to... <laughs> Or, or whatever. I, I, I think you've hit on it, Your Excellency. It's sort of like Nixon's secret plan to get us out of the war, or to, to win the war. <laughs> yeah. the, the secret plan for continuity, uh, which is as yet uh, unrevealed. Um, but yeah. the, the, the remnant crowd will always be waiting for the other <laughs> yeah. shoe to drop. Um, those of you who are interested in, in calling, we're going to try to get through a timeline and sequence here, and we'll start taking calls in the second hour. So if you'll be patient before calling in, um, to wait till we get, and I'll, I'll make an announcement and let you know when we'll be okay to, to call in and ask questions. In the meantime, I have to keep us going. We, talk, we started in 2005. The next year, 2006, we saw another, I would say, rupture um, when we watched uh, Benedict uh, praying in a mosque in Turkey. Um, I'll leave that open to both His Excellency Father and, and Nicholas. Um, what, can you tell us a little bit about the event and what this means. Well, not only was it play, uh, praying in a mosque, which is already uh, an act of uh, an act against the first commandment of God. Uh, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. So that's already a mortal sin, objectively. But he prayed toward uh, Mohammed's tomb. He turned toward the tomb of Mohammed. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas says that to pray before the tomb of Mohammed is an act of apostasy. So I, I think that all you need to do is to fill in the blanks as to what happened that day, and that is he, he posited an act of apostasy. Mm. Uh, the, uh, we believe in a triune God. We believe in a God that has a son, an only begotten son who is equal to him in all things. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. The Muslims do not believe in such a triune God. And therefore, we do not worship the same God. Therefore, he was worshiping a false God. Well, it, it almost seems that we're so used to apostasy, it almost wasn't shocking, wasn't it? When we, we saw it happen, we thought, oh, well, just add it to the list. Yes, yeah, it's perfectly in conformity with the decree on ecumenism and, and Nostra Aetate, the decree on non, non-Christian religions. And in, with all the ecclesiology, that, that faith for them is a, is a religious experience. It's, it's turning on to God, and various people have various faith experiences. And uh, why not participate in this? Uh, all religions are a means of salvation. Uh, they say, you know, some are better than others for that, but they all are all a means of salvation. Uh, John Paul II in Catechesi Tradende in about 1980 said, uh, specifically said that the children must be taught that non-Catholic religions are a means of salvation, which is a bold-faced heresy. Uh, 
the opposite truth is what Pius IX said and called a most well-known Catholic dogma, and that is outside the Church there is no salvation. And this has been repeated by so many uh, organs of the of the magisterium. I mean, it, it is a most well-known Catholic dogma. It was stated again by Pius XII. It's so it, you know these people are clearly guilty of heterodoxy, that is heresy, and heteropraxis, that is a practice that is in accordance with their heresy, which actually confirms the fact that they are heretics and also manifests even more their heresy. Indeed it does, and to return to your point, though, Stephen, that it's been going on uh, for so long, it seems that people are no longer shocked by it. Uh, The uh, different uh, interfaith uh, type of worship experiences that uh, Paul VI um, participated in and that John Paul II participated in, the different things that he did, uh, for instance, in in, uh, Africa, uh, what Benedict XVI did in the mosque is uh, simply one more installment, and I think that unfortunately people have become numb to how shocking and how outrageous this really is. I, I would go beyond that. I don't think they're numb. I think they agree with it. I think that they have most people in the Novus Ordo have lost the Catholic faith and do believe that all religions are more or less good. And that everyone has a path to salvation in each in each religion, uh, and this has been inculcated in their parishes for years. It it, it is the whole spirit of the Novus Ordo of I'm okay, you're okay, uh, where there is not some exclusive religion that we must adhere to, the one true faith, outside of which there is no salvation. Uh, it is uh, perhaps the most devastating effect of Vatican II is this killing of the Catholic faith in so many millions of souls by the poison of ecumenism. They are not numb to it. They agree with it. But, uh, my Lord, wouldn't you say that, uh, what what about um, recognize and resist type of traditional Catholics? They certainly don't agree with it. They just, well, they, they seem to make excuses saying, oh, well, we don't know what he was really praying when he was, I think I've seen something the Holy like, well, Rosary. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, I've seen people make that claim, like, well, sure, his shoes were off, and he had he was facing towards Mecca, uh, but inside his head, he was probably praying the Hail Mary or For the, yeah, the, the, the luminous, the luminous mysteries. I'm sure. Well, that's absurd. You know, that's that's totally absurd because he's positing an act of apostasy. What would lead you to think that he is inside positing an act of Catholicism? If he were Catholic and if he were positing an act of Catholicism, he would run out of that ceremony as fast as he possibly could. Mm -hmm. That would be the Catholic thing to do, to get out of there. But to... to, to, These are people that will sacrifice anything, including their own logic... And in reality, everything on an altar of saving their model, which is that there is continuity of Catholicism in the post-Vatican II church. I'm mean, putting that in quotation marks because mm. the post-Vatican II religion. Mm. This is their model uh, of so many people, uh, Novus Ordo conservatives, that there has to be continuity. 
And therefore, when anything contradictory comes down the pike, reality, logic, a clear thinking, common sense, everything must be sacrificed upon that altar in order to preserve that model. And so they sink, therefore they sink into a, a complete absurdity that you can't even take seriously. Mm-hmm. The, the way that uh, the church law operates is that uh, your external actions are presumed to be in conformity with um, uh, what you're thinking inside. And that's the, the whole basis for uh, so much of, of uh, church law. And uh, when, therefore, you see someone making this sort of uh, act of prayer and uh, act of worship, uh, externally you have all the evidence for that, uh, you're, you have to presume that internally everything is going along with that. But I think part of it was uh, uh, part of the reason for excusing him and John Paul II uh, is something that came up in a previous discussion that there, thanks to Vatican II, there is very much the inclination to look upon um, religion as an internal thing and to say that, well, we always have to look at the person's internal sense before we make any sort of uh, judgment because his, his internal sense might be really good and we can't presume to judge anything from his external acts. Mm-hmm. That goes along with it. And that doesn't make sense because how do you get into someone's mind? If you can say that, well, we can get into his mind and say he's innocent, by the very same token, and with the very same authority, you could go in and say, well, we've seen his mind and he's guilty. You know, what, how can you read somebody's mind? The only thing you can do is go on externals and presume, as the law does and as common sense does, that someone agrees with what he's doing. You know, unless there's a gun to his head. Or, you know, and I've even heard that argument. How do you know that he didn't have a gun to his head when he was doing this, that, or the other? You know, it just becomes really absurd. It's like a lunatic asylum. Yeah, well, it really is. Yeah, now you have all of the conspiracy theories about, you know, resignation because of a death threat. It's always someone trying to excuse <laughs> yes. the actions. These people can't be thought of as an adult, as adults who are in complete control no. of their actions and their words. No. There always has to be something because they've already reached their conclusions. Therefore, they have to bend every action in order to make that conclusion work. I've been reading about this ridiculous uh, bishop that he is now the bishop in white. Uh, from the false, falsely, uh, from the, the falsified <laughs> secret of Fatima, there's so many problems with that. A, he's not a bishop because he was consecrated in in, in the new rite. But B, you, you 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 already admitted that this was a falsified secret that he helped cover up. So let me get this straight: the guy who helped cover up Fatima is going to be the bishop in white when he's not a bishop himself. <laughs> I mean, the contortions these no. people put themselves into is unbelievable. No, well, but, actually, we, fi- we figured out the whole thing, and that is the, the real Ratzinger. This is the conspiracy, the way it goes. The real Ratzinger decided he wanted to tur- turn everything back to before Vatican II. So he was arrested and tied up and gagged and put in the, in the basement of the Vatican. And the one that, that announced his resignation is actually a, a phony, and you can tell by the ears. And, that, that, and he has, he's making a path for a real liberal. That's, that's the... For those, for, those of you, for those of you who are too young for this, His Excellency is recycling the old Paul VI theory, uh, especially regarding the ears. 
Um, <laughs> but, you know, Steve, the prisoner of the Vatican. Stephen, even even Archbishop Lefevre joked about that one. He's, uh, his, he said that the real story on the death of John Paul I was that he went into the basement of the Vatican and had a heart attack when he ran into Paul VI. Well, I've got to keep us on the on the serious trail. We're having a little too much fun with this. Um, okay. We're gonna we're gonna move on to 2007. And um, Father Chicada, I'm sure most people don't normally give you a platform to crow, but Restoration Radio is very happy to provide this to you <laughs> because you were, I think, not only the first person to coin the phrase "motu mass," uh, but I think you accurately predicted a lot of what the intentions were. I mean, we're not able to see inside Benedict's head, apparently. But you were able to look at the intention, you were able to look at and say, what was the purpose of this? And I think five, six years on now, you can really look back and, and say what you were right about, what you were wrong about. Can you can you kind of take us back to your articles that, that when you when you wrote them back at the time of the release of this Modu Proprio, talk about what you thought was going to happen and what has happened. Well, the um, uh, as I recall, I kind of divided it in two ways, sort of positively and negatively. The, uh, on the positive side, like the uh, discourse about the hermeneutic of continuity, there was also um, a bit of an admission of failure in it. You know, the admission of failure, because the new mass, remember was supposed to be something that started like a, a, a new age that revivified the liturgy. Well, not everyone um, bought it. Not everyone took it up. So I suppose it's positive from the point of view of, of being an admission of failure. Also, it removed very much the stigma that had become uh, attached to wanting the old mass. Um, that was previously viewed as something sort of crazy, you know, the, that uh, you wanted this old form of the liturgy. And uh, as well, another positive effect, uh, unintended, surely, uh, by uh, Benedict XVI, was uh, you ended up with divisions in the enemy camp and a discussion of the uh, real issues of the liturgical reform. Now, finally, people could really talk about it uh, because they could see the new Mass and they could see the old Mass under officially approved circumstances and make comparisons and start talking about things. So that was very... Those effects of it, I'd have to say, were very good. It got people thinking uh, about it. It was an admission of failure and so on. But negatively... Uh, there is the other problem, and that is the the whole basis for allowing the motu proprio was an extension of options, as it were. And many people were uh, taken in by that. Those of us who resisted the introduction of the new mass did so for reasons that were uh, primarily doctrinal and moral. That is to say, the new Mass was a threat to Catholic doctrine and to the Catholic faith. Uh, and from the moral point of view, it was a it was irreverent and sacrilegious. So we stayed away from it, and 
we went with the old liturgy, which was doctrinally sound and which was reverent. So there, there were real vital issues for Catholics that were involved there. What happened with the motu proprio is the uh, Benedict XVI uh, co-opted the traditionalist resistance to the new mass by presenting it merely as something which was a matter of uh, taste. That he he spoke of of the new mass or the old mass as as uh, something sacral, holy that it, uh, attracts many people. Uh, that it was a mark of identity. He said in in his um, uh, motu proprio, uh, uh, people were attached to it because of of culture or personal familiarity and so on. So what he was able to do is to short circuit the real meaty issues for uh, dumping the new mass and reduce it to a matter of culture and uh, of taste. And of course, many people uh, fell for that. Many people fell for that. One hopes that they will get beyond it someday uh, to the real issues. But I think that that was certainly the intention of uh, uh, Benedict by allowing this. And, and, uh, for for my part, I would just add to that, uh, Father. My observation is that I, I think uh, uh, he was successful in in really neutralizing a lot of the uh, traditionalist movement by the motu proprio. Because uh, I mean, things like the Remnant newspaper went completely from from being more recognized and resist to completely a, uh, a what I would call like an indult type of uh, mentality where. You know, Benedict XVI is the great. He's the greatest pope ever. How wonderful that he's thrown us these few crumbs. He's, you know, the the best ever, and uh, we have to just go along with everything. And and I think it opened the way for what we've discussed in earlier shows about what's been happening with the Society of Saint Pius X. Yes, it, um, there's that um, uh, neutralization of uh, real resistance to Vatican II. So you give people a form of worship that's uh, readily available relatively, that's aesthetically attractive, that gives off the the airs of of the old religion. And they mistake it for, uh, they mistake the worship for the old religion itself, when there's more to it than that. And people then figure that, well, you know, why should we worry too much about the doctrinal uh, issues that are involved with uh, Vatican II because our wonderful Holy Father has has allowed us to have this this Mass, which we like, so we're content over in our corner, and we don't have to listen to those who have other ideas. But they've become, they're, uh, they've all been pulled into the big tent of uh, the one world religion. You see, most people just want to go to Mass. They really don't want to get involved in dogma and theology. They just want to go to Mass and fulfill their basic obligations of religion. So if he has solved the Mass problem for them, they're happy. They they can go back to their churches and and they don't have to worry anymore. They don't have to go to Holiday Inns and 
and and uh, they they just uh, find an easier path. That most people are like that, and uh, so and that's the way they're drawn in. That's how they were drawn in during the Reformation. They just went to their parishes. They they little by little they they became Protestants. They didn't wake up one day and decide I'm going to be a Protestant today. Most of them. I mean, I'm sure there were some radicals, but most of them just oozed in it little by little, and and because that was the the general feeling in their area, and and it was easier. They went that way, and and that's what he has provided. He's provided a, a path to modernism with the Motu Mass to the traditionalists who have up to now been resisting on the level of liturgy, and because that wall was taken away uh, for them. Uh, they have a wide open path to modernism unless they now are willing to resist on the level of doctrine. Yes. Which is far more important. I know I often have thought of it as uh, somewhat of a blessing in disguise that the uh, uh, Novus Ordo Mass was introduced. Uh, because uh, if it hadn't been introduced and they kept the traditional Latin Mass, then this sort of uh, this may have been a problem earlier. But on the other hand, it may be a blessing in disguise that the motus, uh, motu proprio was was issued because now perhaps it forces the traditional movement to focus a bit more on the the doctrine, uh, which uh, I certainly agree is the most important, versus just making it about the Mass. Mm-hmm. Sure. There's another important point here, too, and that is that you can desire the traditional Mass for a modernist motive. If you desire the traditional Mass because it is the true Mass of the Catholic Church and, and reflects true Catholic doctrine, that is a Catholic motive. But if you desire the traditional Mass because you like it better and you don't like the new Mass, then that you are a modernist, actually, in picking the traditional Mass, because you're saying, well, this corresponds to my feelings. This is what I feel. This is what I like. But I don't object to what other people like, too. Even the classical modernists, uh, 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 George Terrell, who actually was excommunicated by Pius X, um, he wrote rather extensively on uh, the relation be- relationship between prayer and belief, and in one of his books, Lex Arandi, he talks about the uh, the power of the Catholic liturgy to affect one's religious sense, because uh, it suggests mystery and, and, and faith, and it speaks to man's spirit, and so on. And uh, I believe he says that, that it uh, has a better effect than any theological discourse could ever have. So if you have even a, a modernist saying something like that, uh, you know, it's, a, uh, it's an indication that there could be a real problem here. And then, of course, uh, if you look at the history of the high church movement uh, in England, uh, there are many places in the uh, 20th century that all, all sorts of elaborate uh, Catholic ritual and, and music but it was conducted by a clergy who uh, were modernists, who didn't in any way, shape, or form uh, believe in the, the um, uh, truths of the Christian faith. It was something that appealed to them. And so that's well, the danger you end up with high churchism. And, and Father, I want to segue from talking about the truths of the Catholic faith. Something else that happened 
the same year that the Motu came out, was the release of the first of three parts, Jesus of Nazareth. And His Excellency spoke a little bit about this in our last show. For those of you who didn't listen to our last show, there's a specific heresy that's simply listed in uh, this book. Um, and Your Excellency, would you like to speak about this just for a moment, and we'll, we'll move on to our next year. Yes, the, the principal thing, there's a lot of problems in that book, but the principal one is his denial of the resurrection of Christ. Um, he denies that there is a resuscitated corpse. Now, the, the traditional teaching concerning the resurrection is in the uh, Council, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, that uh, our Lord's soul was reunited to his body, and that uh, he who was dead during those uh, three days arose and returned again to life from which he had departed when dying. So you have definitely a resuscitated corpse there. You have the, the body of Christ that has come back because he has received his soul back. That is the teaching, the traditional teaching and understanding of the Catholic Church. Ratzinger rejects that. He, uh, he of course, in all of this obscure language, uh, he uh, says that uh, you're dealing with essentially a theophany. That is a, a an appearance of something. Uh, uh, you, you're not dealing with a tangible uh, body or the, the original body. Let's put it that way, whether he says it's tangible or not. Uh, you're not dealing with the original body of Christ. You're dealing with experiences of the apostles of a risen Christ. Uh, this is, uh, this is you know, it goes on and on. It would take the whole show to really to analyze this, but uh, uh, for example, um, he says, uh, therefore, the resurrection of Jesus is not an isolated event that we could set aside as something limited to the past, but constitutes an evolutionary leap. Uh, the resurrection accounts certainly speak of something outside of our world of experience. This is still Ratzinger. They speak of something new, something unprecedented, a new dimension of reality that is revealed. So it's something outside of history and time for him. Uh, and it's outside of the reality that we know. Um, uh, he says, how are we to picture to ourselves the appearances of the risen one who had not returned to normal human life but had passed over into a new manner of human existence? Uh, now this is contrary to the gospel where our Lord was precisely proving that he had risen, that he was tangible, he ate some food, he, he had St. Thomas put his hand into his side and, uh, and his hands. Uh, he was proving that he was truly risen. Uh, that is the whole point of the, uh, all of the gospel narratives uh, after, the after the resurrection. Um, <clears throat> he says, Ratzinger says, his presence is entirely physical, <laughs> Yet he is not bound by physical laws, by the laws of space and time. And then he, he says that, uh, um, let's see, uh, he says the uh, encounters with the risen Lord are not just interior events or mystical experiences. They are real encounters with the living one who is now embodied in a new way and remains embodied. Um, 
he says he doesn't come from the realm of the dead. Our Lord does not come from the realm of the dead, which is contrary to the teaching of the church because it says in the creed that he rose from the dead, ex mortuis. Mm-hmm. So where is he coming from? Uh, I mean, this is directly contrary to the creed. Uh, uh, he, uh, he, uh, so he, he's, um, uh, again, he mentions evolutionary leap. Uh, he says, essential then is the fact that Jesus' resurrection was not just about some deceased individual coming back to life, at a certain point, but that an ontological leap occurred, one that touches being as such, opening up a dimension that affects us all, creating for all of us a new space of life, a new space of being in union with God, you know, all sorts of things. This is uh, a uh, a rehash of what the modernists said concerning the resurrection of Christ, that it was something outside of history, that it was some new event a new kind of event that could not be verified by normal historical methods of ve- verification. And that was uh, condemned by St. Pius X uh, in uh, Lamentabili Sane, which was a uh, motu proprio, his motu proprio, uh, condemning, uh, he says, St. Pius X says, the re- condemns this proposition. The resurrection of the Savior is not properly a fact of the historical order but a fact of a purely supernatural order, neither demonstrated nor demonstrable, and which the Christian conscience gradually derived from other sources. Um, And another condemnation, faith in the resurrection of Christ was from the beginning not so much of the fact of the resurrection itself as of the immortal life of Christ with God. I mean, that's pure Ratzinger. Pure Ratzinger. Uh, so he's just repeating what the old modernists said, and which is, uh, um, you know, just a you know, rehash of something that's a hundred years old. One thing to point out, uh, uh, Your Excellency, we we talked about this, and it may have come up in a previous show as well, that uh, instead of stating things clearly, you get this great ocean of uh, what you could call poppycock, and yes. obscure language darting back and forth, uh, whereas the uh, statements of something like the Catechism of the Council of Trent are, you know, eminently clear when they talk about the uh, these different uh, aspects of our faith. When they talk about the resurrection, yes. but uh, the uh, danger always with uh, modernists is that the way they speak, the average guy gets the impression that it's very, very profound and very deep. But in fact, it's simply obscure. And it's intentionally yes. obscure. And it's poppycock. Yes, and it never makes a point. There's an old saying, the devil hates points. It never makes a point. It, it leads you down a path, and it suggests things to you. And the effect being that you're a modernist when you arrive at the end of the path, but it never, it, it, or at least seeks never to state a heresy clearly, but it leads you into heresy. It's something like the new mass. Yeah. It, 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 without, you know, you would be hard-pressed, although at the beginning there was a blatant heresy in it, but you'd be hard-pressed to go through the text of the new mass and say, ah, here's a heresy. But it leads you into it. It's suggestive and draws you right down into where you should be, the denial of transubstantiation, the denial of the holy sacrifice of the mass, the denial of the priesthood, uh, 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 by corrupting it in your mind, 
And that's the same thing that modern theology does. And the, the, way, the way it works is, um, as His Excellency said, Excellency said is, is by suggestion. And they never uh, give you a uh, directly contradictory uh, proposition. They'll never say that, well, we do not believe in uh, the physical resurrection of mm-hmm. uh, Christ. They, uh, by suggestion, they lead you to contrary uh, Propositions to suggest something that uh, uh, some belief that if you embraced it would destroy your faith in the resurrection as the church has always understood that, and that is why they use the obscure language. Yes, yes. Now, now speaking of obscure language, sorry, uh, uh, we, we need. I need to try to keep us moving along here since there's a whole lot to uh, discuss. A lot of things that. Uh, that have been done. Uh, but one thing I wanted to talk about briefly, I know it was mentioned in the last show a bit, was the following off the, the motu proprio on the Mass, there was the change in the Good Friday prayer. Was As we move into 2008, that was one of the first things that was done in 2008. It was uh, January 21st, 2008, when that change came out. Um, yes. That so, was uh, I think an that's another. To, uh, to alleviate the Jewish problem there, I mean, the uh, because the old liturgy, even the 62, called for the conversion of the Jews, that the veil be taken away from their eyes. and uh, Well, that, of course, you know, sparked all kinds of controversy. So he changed the Good Friday prayer to some very odd thing about Jews coming in at the end or something like that. And, uh, uh, well, the, the new prayer that he has now says... Uh, May our God and Lord enlighten their hearts so that they may acknowledge Jesus Christ, Savior of all men. Uh, Let us pray, let us kneel, arise, and it says, Almighty and everlasting God, who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, mercifully grant that as the fullness of the Gentiles enters into thy church, all Israel may be saved through Christ our Lord. Amen. Yeah, I mean... What that means, is, I, I wouldn't even venture to. Uh, you know, the 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 most charitable thing to say to those people is that you should recognize the true Messiah as mm-hmm. your king, and and uh, that is charity to them. It is not a charity to them to leave them uh, it, thinking that the Old Testament and adherence to the Old Testament is going to bring them eternal salvation. Mm-hmm. But but see the 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 thing uh, that wasn't mentioned uh, on the last occasion when this prayer was brought up is how again traditionalists or people who call themselves traditionalists reacted to this. Now, um, I my understanding is that the Society of Saint Pius X never did adopt this prayer. Although I'm not sure that there was ever a formal pronouncement from their leadership on that regard. All I could find when I researched it was that. Apparently, at a, in a sermon uh, at the priests' meeting in Ridgefield, shortly after this, Bishop Fele uh, made said that they uh, were not going to uh, were not going to use this. But um, uh, the remnant, who I referenced earlier, is saying that in my view, they completely jumped into the the tent with the modernists uh, after the motu proprio was issued. Uh, Chris uh, Ferreira, one of their well-known writers is calling this 
a masterstroke and a masterpiece that Benedict XVI came up with this because it clearly calls for the conversion of the Jews and Abraham Foxman was outraged by it, so therefore that's proof that this is a fantastic prayer. <laughs> yeah, you well, have the traditional... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, the traditional prayer very clearly called for the conversion of the Jews, and there was nothing wrong with it. Why did it have to be changed? Man, the answer is ecumenism. Right. And uh, uh, one might point out at this uh, juncture that uh, those particular prayers are the oldest collects in the Missal. The Good Friday prayers, uh, the, the uh, what were called the general intercessions, and um, it, it is really shocking from the point of view of the history of the liturgy that they would tinker with something like that. But they did because ecumenism is the the new paradigm uh, that mm -hmm. Vatican II established. So they would they would have to do it. Yes. Um, and uh, just moving along with uh, 2008, things happened in 2008. Uh, another example, I, I think, of uh, disproving this conservative myth of uh, Benedict XVI was, uh, he, I, I know on the last occasion there was discussion of how he apparently secretly disagreed with Assisi, but then went ahead and did his own Assisi. I think there was also a similar rumor about World Youth Day and the excesses of that, that he was secretly opposed to that, and then had World Youth Day in Sydney um, in 2008, which was just more of the same, uh, maybe not as horrific as the Spanish one, just based on the, the few things I've read or a few pictures I've seen. Um, well, there's a whole lot of secret opposition going on. I think that that's the moral of the story. Right. And it's so secret that no one really hears about it. Uh, uh, it's a, the same uh, old thing. Because that doesn't fit into the model of the Novus Ordo conservative, then, you know, the, the, the secret thing comes out. They, this, you know, it must be a secret. So uh, anything to preserve Benedict. Mm -hmm. but, but when you talk about the... This goes back to what you were talking about with ecumenism. Was you know these World Youth Days? This is a, it's not doesn't even mention. There's no God mentioned in the title. Just World Youth Day. Nothing to do with our Lord. Um, that this is supposed to help you know evangelize the youth and bring them along. And over and over we've seen this hasn't been the case. Well, it hasn't. It hasn't worked. And the, the whole idea, um, uh, or one of the big ideas behind Vatican II, was to. Uh, you know, convert modern men, convert modern society by throwing out dusty old doctrines and disciplines and so on. Well, that didn't work with society in general, and the statistics show that it, it certainly didn't work with uh, what we would call the youth now. I mean, if you look at the statistics in France, um, the percentage of, uh, the, of uh, young people uh, who... Uh, go to mass is, is virtually non-existent in in uh, one uh, group in uh, your forties. Uh, uh, it's something like three percent. Uh, in the next demographic below that, it's two percent. The one below that is one percent, and in the ages eighteen to twenty-four, it's zero who go every week. 
So you have to step back and think. Um, uh, this brings you back to Vatican II, which was supposed to attract all of these people. This is springtime in the church. Springtime <laughs> in the church. Well, you know, it's a, it's the media's fault. Uh, Father, the real the real spirit of World Youth Day has not yet been unleashed, and when yeah, that happens, right. then we will see a new spring or summertime or pick your season. Um, I, I I I do have to keep us moving. Um, so that was uh, 2008. We have the Good Friday prayer and another World Youth Day. I want to take us forward to 2011. Uh, in 2010, we did have the approval of the use of condoms. His Excellency talked about that in our very first show on the Resignation Day. I'd like to come back to that at some point, but I'm going to bring us to 2011. We're getting close to the, the first hour mark, and I want to try to get us up to 2000, at least 2011 before we start taking calls. And here is when we found out, Your Excellency, that beatifications are also something that you can pick and choose whether, as a Catholic, you can decide on your own uh, whether they're part of uh, the teaching magisterium of the church or part of the disciplinary uh, rules of the church that um, you can pick and choose whether you want to use the new code of canon law, whether you want to use the new mass. Well, now you can also pick and choose, well, he's not really beatified because the Society of St. Pius X said so. Um, And I've always found this to be really, really interesting because this is a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what can we say about the beatification of, of John Paul II, what this means for what you refer to as saving the baby, or I would say uh, guilting, gilding the baby in gold uh, for all time, and, uh, and, and what this says to traditionalists who, who think that they can claim that they can resist the beatifications of a man they consider to be the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth? Well, first, I mean... Beatifying or John Paul II is just the most absurd thing that anybody could ever come up with. Uh, the, I mean, how you can, if you were a CEO of an organization and the thing went bankrupt <laughs> under your aegis, do you get canonized by <laughs> the company or do they think that you have been a scoundrel? And the, the, everything went down under, under uh, John Paul II. I mean, just from the point of view of statistics, also all of the scandals. And, and I mean, just, just consider some of the things he did. He, he, he uh, permitted and, and promoted through the appointment of heretical bishops the utter destruction of the unity of faith throughout the whole world. He turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to the intense suffering and scarring of thousands of young innocent persons <coughs> who were being abused by the Novus Ordo clergy. Just a deaf ear. And those complaints were made to Rome and nothing was done. <clears throat> he participated actively in the false worship of nearly every religion on earth, which is a mortal sin against the first commandment of God. <clears throat> He organized that horrid 1986 Assisi meeting, which is one of the most blasphemous events in the history of the world, you know, since creation. One of the most blasphemous events, and and rose to heaven with such a stench of blasphemy and heresy and apostasy. He organized that and presided over it, Uh, and uh, he presided over liturgies in many cases, which uh, used bare-breasted women uh, dancing or reading the the uh, the epistle 
Um, <clears throat> he praised the voodoo religion. Uh, he declared that non-Catholic religions are means of salvation, which is, we already said, contrary to the teaching of the Catholic Church. He praised and approved of the joint declaration with the Lutherans concerning justification, which is full of heresy against the explicit teaching of the Council of Trent. And he uh, supported and blessed Father Marcel uh, Maciel, who was perhaps one of the most evil priests that ever existed. And there's pictures of him receiving this horrid man. Mm. May, do you get canonized for that? Do you get you get lifted up and presented to the people as as a man of virtue? So, I mean, the whole thing is absurd. It's absurd. Everybody knows it's absurd, but it is done in order precisely to canonize Vatican II. So we have John the Twenty Third beatified. We have Paul VI in the pipeline now. He's a venerable Paul VI, which is even more absurd than JP2. And then we have the, the, the John Paul II. And soon we're going to have Ratzinger. No doubt we're going to have Ratzinger. And oh, yeah, San, is, Santo Subito uh, tomorrow afternoon. Watch, watch for it yeah, now. Yeah, so <laughs> the, the, by the way, that, that Santo Subito was rehearsed and, and programmed by the Vatican. I don't know if you know that. No. All of that screaming Santo Subito for JP2 was rehearsed and planned by the Vatican. And people planted in the crowd to do it. Uh, because they need a hero of Vatican II. Just like Mother Teresa, you know, she's a, the heroine of Vatican II. You see, we can produce saints. We don't merely produce destruction and disintegration and decomposition. We produce saints, and the very people producing these saints are saints themselves. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's like the early church. When did you have a string of, of, of saint popes since the early church? So, mm. the, and we're sitting on an unprecedented destruction of faith throughout the world, and these people get canonized for it? Also, there's the, the element with this canonization after all of the, um, the crimes and horrors that uh, Bishop Sanborn has, has mentioned. Uh, there's the idea that it was the JP to the superstar, the superstar pope, and the pope of the media. And by canonizing him, one plays to that image. Because what uh, when people think of JP two, they think of JP two as as the media star going everywhere in the world. So by canonizing him, you canonize uh, Vatican two along with him, and you give credibility to the. Uh, or you try at least to give credibility to what has gone on in, in these unprecedented years of destruction. Mm. Yes, and I think that uh, much of that popularity of JP2 was, you know, not out of piety, but because he was a superstar. He was a stage figure. He was a movie star. And it's just like people screaming in front of uh, rock stars. It's about what. Well, yeah, well, you, it's Pavlovian. You say JP2, and I want to say I love you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's just how it went. That's all it is. I mean, the people screaming are not exactly, uh, you know, the, they're probably all modernist heretics just as much as he is. Mm. Well, uh, that takes us to our halfway point. Um, and for those of you who are joining us in Medias Res, you are listening to Restoration Radio. Our topic today is the <coughs> legacy of Benedict XVI, uh, Joseph Ratzinger. And uh, we're covering on today's show, which is the second part of a three-part series, the years 2005 through 2013, 
Uh, and we're doing the show today because the application is tomorrow, and everyone will be set of a contest tomorrow around 2 p.m., I think. Uh, <laughs> Eastern time. Ro- yes. <laughs> the Some entire, of us the more than others, world. Steven. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 Some of us more than others. No, 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 no one's going to try to outset AU, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, those of us who are, those of you who are joining us, our guests are His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Father Anthony Jakarta, and helping me today. Um, normally, uh, he's got always busy during during the workday, but he's able to join us for a few minutes at least. Um, Nicholas Wansbutter. And um, if you'd like to call in now to ask either His Excellency uh, or Father Jakarta any questions about what we've been talking about so far, um, we'll be happy to take your calls. Um, we also have Twitter open for questions, and we do have a question from Twitter, and Your Excellency or Father, either of you can answer this. I know you have slightly different answers to this, but the question is, if the next electee is not a manifest heretic, there's no paper trail or public heretical talk, if he presumed to be the Roman pontiff, even if he is a Novus Ordo or Vatican II supporter, does he need to do more such as denounce Vatican II and the Novus Ordo, or is he still not the Pope? I'm curious as to how this works. Well, the way I would answer it is that unless he takes that Vatican II book and burns it in the front of St. Peter's Basilica, he's no Pope. Okay. Uh, the, the, the very clean and straightforward, <laughs> sir. Father, Father, can you can you top that? Uh, I can top it by saying I don't. I would say that even if he did that, uh, he's still no pope. That uh, you would um, my uh, take, uh, which differs from Bishop Sanborn, uh, on the uh, election by the different cardinals, is that the cardinals themselves are not validly appointed. So I wouldn't recognize his um, uh, his election as being a valid election. I would say, however, as I think I said before, that um, there is always the um, fact that he does occupy the Vatican and that, um, you know, he is, uh, some, is someone who would have to be dislodged one way or another. But I guess that's the simple answer. Uh, Bishop Sanborn has one point of view on that. I have another. Mm. Well, and uh, you know, along with uh, along with the the doctrines of Vatican II, part of the legacy of that is, are things like the the UCAT, which also came out in 2011. We talked about the beatification, and UCAT it doesn't even I, I, you're not even they don't even bother to say youth catechism. They've got to say UCAT, uh, which was uh, put together by the protege uh, Cardinal Schornborn. Um, and I'll, your Excellency, your father, if you'd like to talk about uh, about about that a bit, that would be uh, that'd be great. Yes, well, I have it in my hand, so I'm, I might as well talk about it. Uh, Go ahead. This, this is a really evil book for many reasons. It contains uh, uh, certain heresies, but what is actually more evil about it is that all of the morality is based on purely humanistic motives. And, and I'll show you. Um, first, it, it, it denies original sin. <clears throat> it, it says, therefore, the term original sin refers not to a personal sin, but rather to the disastrous fallen state of mankind into which the individual is born. The fallen 
it, it is not the fallen state. This is to to confuse the guilt of original sin, which is on every soul, with the effects of original sin. And this was already condemned by the Church. Luther said that original sin is concupiscence, you know, the yeah. the tendency of man toward evil. And that that was condemned by the Council of Trent. It, there is truly a sin that must be remitted. So right off the bat, they deny original sin and assert the Lutheran notion of it. Um, <clears throat> they never define a sacrament. They just talk around sacraments. They never define it. Um, <clears throat> uh, he says, for example, <clears throat> uh, what happens to us when we celebrate the liturgy? Answer, when we celebrate the liturgy, we are drawn into the love of God, healed and transformed. I mean, that is the closest that they come to uh, the definition of the Mass. Uh, uh, therefore, like for example, the note says, someone who is forsaken and goes to the Mass receives protection and consolation from God. Someone who feels lost and goes to Mass finds a God who is waiting for him. It's all of this... Uh, Self-help, uh, obscure, uh, you know. Um, it, it, it gives you no. Uh, it gives you no definitions. No. Uh, no essential definitions. You end up with it's sort of consequentialist. That, well, uh, if you go to mass, uh, this you'll feel good. Effect. You'll feel better, and this this uh, effect, you know, may happen. Um, yes. And uh, uh, if you go back to the definition, such as it was, or the discussion of original sin, uh, you know, it, 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 it's ridiculous because the old catechisms were also clear on it. Hmm. Uh, why another... do you have to do away with this for kids? And the answer is that it is um, uh, that the old definitions are uh, cannot be reconciled with modernist theology. Uh, here's another, at least error, if it's not a heresy, I think it's a heresy, though, but a sacrament can be effective only if one understands and accepts it with, in faith. Babies don't have the virtue of faith. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, in the sense that the, when you approach baptism, well, I guess you have the beginning of faith, but the, the, uh, the, is, uh, even if you approach baptism, with a completely false understanding or even without faith, you receive a valid baptism. Yeah. You don't have to be rebaptized. If you go up to confirmation in the same way, without faith, you still receive a valid confirmation. It doesn't give grace because you're in the state of mortal sin and all, but it can be revivified. So that is a Lutheran thing, that, that in order for a sacrament to have effect, it must you must receive it with faith. That's completely Lutheran. Um, uh, they so, give you stuff in the catechism that, uh, you know, not only does not tell you what you should know, but is positively false. Yes. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, not only confusing, but uh, erroneous and her heretical and evil. But now listen to why we should observe Sunday. This is how important is Sunday? If Sunday is disregarded or abolished, only work days are left in the week. Man, who was created for joy, degenerates into a workhorse and a mindless consumer. We must learn on earth how to celebrate po properly, or else we will not know what to do in heaven. Heaven is an endless Sunday. 
So we don't want to turn into consumer things like that. Heaven forbid we mention the Ten Commandments or the rights of God. But, um, uh, Father and uh, Lord, uh, we we have a live caller that uh, I'd like to um, introduce his question. We have a gentleman named uh, Joe calling from Ohio, and uh, he has a question about how the splintering amongst uh, traditionalists might be healed. Uh, go ahead, Joe, with uh, your full question. How are you doing, Your Excellency and Father and Stephen? Hi. It's a pleasure to talk to you on the on True Restoration Radio. I've been a big fan for a while. And uh, I'm in the Novus Older Oral Church, and I guess I think I'm, myself is pretty faithful. Uh, mm-hmm. And I do see a lot of problems in the church. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you're talking about is, is probably wrong or theologically incorrect. I'm not going to sit here and argue that. But However, when, when I notice that all these churches break away, all these bishops, like we got Bishop Williamson, I've heard him, uh, I guess he's in uh, um, Idaho now, and he's doing independent confirmations, and then you got Pius V, and you got these guys in the <clears throat> Holy Family Monastery out there doing mm-hmm. their thing. I just see all these factions, and all they do is they call you know, they, we criticize the Pope, or a lot of people criticize the Pope. They become CD vacantists, and then nothing seems to get done. You, you build up your own little empire, your own church, and then, I mean, where are we at? I mean, where's the faithful going to, how's the faithful going to rise above this? Because Christianity, since, I don't know, the Muslim days have been fractured, splintered, and and all these derivatives we have out here now. I mean, how so it's it, a, it's a very good together? Very good question, and uh, you know it's 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 one that it's a common question that we get all the time. Maybe Your Excellency, you could start on that. Yes, uh, there's a couple of things to say about it. First, uh, the answer to the, your question, how to resolve all of this fighting, is the election of a true Catholic Pope. Period. Yeah. <laughs> but that said, mm-hmm. the, because we would all just do what he said. Yeah. But that said, I mean, uh, you have to understand a few things. First of all, traditionalists do not argue about faith. They have unity yeah. of Catholic faith. And mm-hmm. that is something that the Novus Ordo does not have. They have yeah. a complete dispersion uh, of beliefs, and they are more disunited in beliefs than Protestants are. So there is no unity of faith in the Novus Ordo, and unity of faith is one of the marks of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Where where the traditionalists disagree is in things that flow and are, are from the faith and are, are concluded from the faith, and that is how how uh, usually we should apply the faith to the present situation. For example, are these men who who promote Vatican II are they popes or not? Uh, then assuming that they're not for a moment. Uh, well, how do we act toward them liturgically? Can we mention their name in the canon or not? And these are all theological issues which ought to be resolved by Rome. That is the whole one of the purposes of the papacy is to settle theological disputes. And because we are without a Roman pontiff, we have theological disputes. Not about the faith, but about what we call theology. That is, how to apply the faith and how to conclude from the faith. And so... For as long as it's not a true pope, we're, we're, we're going to have a certain amount of that, even a great deal of it, but it is a sign of our Catholicism because we will not listen to anybody except the Roman pontiff. No one can solve these issues except the Roman pontiff. Uh, 
So the very fighting among traditionalists is a sign of their Catholicism. The mm-hmm. only kind of unity that the Novus Ordo has is an organizational unity. It's like one big corporation, but it does not have any internal or supernatural unity. The other thing that I would add, Joe, is that, um, to what His Excellency said, is that if you look at history um, and you try to apply some of the lessons of history, you see that in situations where uh, the Roman pontiff could not uh, actually exercise his authority, uh, Catholics who maintain the same faith nevertheless uh, fell, to, uh, fell to fighting as to many practical matters. So uh, if you look at the history of England during the time after the uh, Protestant revolt, the Pope could not exercise his authority there. You have these small groups of Catholics. Uh, uh, What happened is that the Jesuits and the diocesan priests ended up battling and and even starting rival mass centers. Um, Or if you look at... at, at, um, France during the time of, of the, the 17th century, the French king wouldn't let the Pope exercise his authority in uh, certain matters to do with religious orders, and I belong to one of those religious orders, the Cistercians, uh, and there was a disagreement um, among members of the Cistercian order of whether they um, should eat meat or not. So they fell to fighting. Uh, the Pope could not exercise his authority uh, in France over this uh, because the king wouldn't let, let him, and they fought for a hundred years. There were lawsuits and, and rival monasteries and even fistfights and so on. They agreed on uh, essentials as far as the Catholic faith, but because there was no Pope to, who, who effectively could exercise discipline over them, they had these other disagreements, but the faith survived. And that's the important thing. Right. I understand that, but once you set up your own, I guess, your own congregation and you separate yourself from the Pope, that means, you know, you're not going to deal with them. Because I guess right now with the Pius X Society, they're, they're trying to, Rome is trying to reconcile with them. Uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of it. From what, there's a lot of rumors you hear on the Internet and such, but there's some effort there. So, but... He's trying to uh, become, I guess, to rectify their situation through uh, the, uh, negotiations, and there's a, there's a stop, stoppage for some reason. I don't understand the whole theological consequences of that. But then what I'm afraid of is that, let's see, when, the, when you see these breakaway units, sometimes they, after a while, they, I guess they, 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 they spread out further and further, and, you know, like the Lutherans or something, they're ordained women and and they got gay creeds. I'm not saying it's going to happen with your organization, but you know, you, you know, you don't know what's going to happen a hundred years from now. I mean, we don't know. We but don't it's know gonna, it's, it's one of the consequences of of uh, you know absence of true authority in uh, the Novus Ordo Church. And uh, the important thing is. Uh, the important part of our apostolate is, is to, in fact, maintain the faith as best we can. And we're doing essentially what we describe as, as a holding action. It's, uh, right. they're going, it's not going to be perfect in any way, shape, or right. form. And furthermore, I would add that yeah. the most likely place in which you're going to see the ordination of women and gay priests is in the Novus Ordo. 
It's not going to be right. in traditionalist no. groups. No. no, I know that. I'm just using an example. I mean, uh, they had good, Luther had good intentions, and look what happened. Everything blew up in his face. Well, uh, you're, you're presuming, life. though, in saying that, that the Novus yeah. Ordo represents Catholicism. Well, and uh, that's our precise point, that it does not. Yeah. And right. that's why I said the most likely place in which you are yeah. going to see those aberrations is in your own parish, right. where you're going. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see them in our churches. <laughs> you might well, see a topless I, lecturette get up and read the epistle. I mean, yeah. the, 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 was that a papal mass um, in New Guinea? I mean, <laughs> you're, you're acting, you're talking as though the Novus Ordo is the Catholic Church uh, of 1950, and that we are out of it because we are we are disgruntled with certain changes and we have to get back into it. I mean, this is, this is your, the model that you are presenting, and, and it's, uh, you know, I would have to totally disagree with it. The reason that we want nothing to do with it is precisely because there is rupture with the past and that they will eventually come up with, with everything you described. Mm-hmm. Well, I, hope uh, I hope the new Pope will be a uh, very, very holy man and, and lead us to heaven. Like a true father should. Well, before long he'll be canonized, so it's nothing to worry about. <laughs> Santo, we can we can shout Santo Subito right after the election. I got my banner up already. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I, I appreciate, it, and I think the one thing that you guys, you gentlemen, have that uh, I think uh, Bishop Fillet talked about it is the number of ordinations that sort of uh, how should I say it. Uh, like a uh, jab the side of the church, and uh, and uh, he said, I think in France they get ten, twenty percent of all the total vocations in the priesthood, and all mm-hmm. the people. I mean, they need to go to mass, but they can't go to Novus Ordo mass because there is none. Because mm-hmm. the priests, there's no vocations. And, and another right? sign of the failure of of, of yeah. Vatican too. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, mm-hmm. and I think that's going to be the great equalizer, and and I think they'll bring the church back in in line, and. Uh, and I'm, I guess I want to fight it in the church. That's just my, that's just my thing. I don't know. But my guidance, I guess, from the Holy Spirit, is to is to uh, fight uh, to deal with the deacons I deal with and the priests that I deal with to try to set them straight. Uh, it's it's hard, but <laughs> someone's got to do it. Uh, okay. Uh, well, thanks very much for your comments. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate, appreciate it. And I'll put you in my prayers and, and uh, good luck. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, uh, th- and thanks for the call. Uh, but uh, moving right along, um, just to round out 2011, I, I think the last big event of 2011 uh, under Benedict XVI would be uh, a CC Part Three. Um, and well, it, it seems simply to me that, as, as regards that, all I would say is it's more of the same, and. Uh, uh, the uh, more of the same, but perhaps diluted. Yeah, yeah, and in wrapped comparison. in a bit. Yeah, wrapped in a bit of more Catholic trappings in a way. Because I, the, the, a lot of the commentaries I read from at least mainstream media or Novus Ordo is that their view was that um, Benedict XVI took great pains to avoid the uh, the impression that there was uh, unified prayer at the event and. 
uh, tried to assert the theological differences, and I know a lot of people made a huge deal of uh, his chair was slightly taller than everyone else's or or something mm-hmm. like that. So therefore, this made a CC3 not as bad as the previous ones. Well, I, I'm sure that Mohammed will bless him. It's just another another episode of of the same you know series. That's all. Yeah. And um, I can't help I can't help but think a little bit about our last caller, um, Joe. I was definitely in your uh, world at one point, in which I conceived of the Novus Ordo Church as the as the church, and I would make a comment like, "I've got to stay in the church, and and someone's got to do it." And I have to tell you, there's um, you're not in the Catholic Church. The, the Novus Ordo Church has all of the properties. They have the um, they have the Vatican. They have control of all the media. Even the even the non-Catholic media recognizes them as the Catholic Church. And you have to keep in mind that I, I go back to Saint Athanasius's uh, letter to his congregation, and he says they have the churches, but you have the faith. But we have the faith. And you have to ask yourself: Is your definition of Catholic being holding the property deed to your local Novus Ordo Church? If that's your definition of Catholicism, then for sure you're in Catholicism. But I have to disabuse you of the notion that you are in the Catholic Church. I promise you that you are not. You are in something that is a counterfeit Catholic Church, and it's great victory, and it's winning over good-hearted people like yourself who are trying to do the right thing, is getting them to believe that they're fighting for the truth inside what they think to be the Catholic Church, but they're not. They're in something which can be referred to as many things. I, I use the term Novus Ordo sect, but it, it bears very li- little resemblance to Catholicism. If you look, it bears the same resemblance to Catholicism as early-stage Anglicanism, early-stage Lutheranism. I mean, Martin Luther believed in the Immaculate Conception. You can go back, if I put you into a church in Germany in, in the 1500s, I would challenge most lay people to, to tell me whether they were at a, a Lutheran service or at a traditional mass, there were still lots of weird things going on in all sorts of different towns in Germany, and you have to ask yourself, am I really in the Catholic Church, and by what definition am I in the Catholic Church? And I think that's what His Excellency and Father were trying to convey to you. That being said, I think it is a good thing that you're listening to our show, because you're going to hear a point of view that you will definitely not be hearing from the from the Novus Ordo pulpit. Um, along with that, we move into 2012, and here we have the 50th anniversary of Vatican II. This is the council that has defined the Novus Ordo Church. It is what you will hear from the pulpit in the Novus Ordo. And uh, I don't think I need any sort of, uh, to give any sort of prompt to His Excellency or Father to talk about that. Well, you just might want to let us have a minute to put our party hats on to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Oh, Your Excellency, do you want to go first, or should I? I want you go first. Uh, that that speech that uh, Ratzinger gave recently, oh, yeah. I think, says it all. Yeah. So we talked at the beginning of the show about how uh, you know the hermeneutic of of continuity was uh, the theme of uh, of uh, Ratzinger's reign, and then the latest thing is uh, a. Uh, comments from him after the announcement of his uh, the announcement of his resignation that the fault of what happened to the church after Vatican II 
was not the fault of Vatican II itself, but it was essentially the fault of the virtual council. And by this, he meant the press. That it was the press that misinterpreted all of the wonderful things that uh, Vatican II had had come up with, that the fathers had come up with, and this he uh, and turned it into a virtual council, and this is what resulted in uh, all of these disasters in the church. Now, yes, he laments have, in, in the speech. I mean, I don't know if you have it in front of you, Father, but in the speech he says, you know, there's been a lot of negative that's come out of Vatican II, and and uh, a lot of seminaries closing and so forth. And and but this is the result not of the council but of the of the media. Yes, and the the it was the, he says that there was the council of the fathers, the true council, but there was also the council of the media. It was almost a council in and of itself, and the world perceived the council through them, through the media. So the council that immediately effective got through to the people was that of the media, not that of the fathers. So he said that the Council of Journalists did not take place within the world of faith, but within the categories of the media of today, that is, outside the faith, with different, well, do you want to say the word hermeneutics? Yep, hermeneutics. And it was a hermeneutic of politics. Uh, so he goes on about this to try to stick the, the press or the blame what, what he and his buddies did. And this, uh, I sputtered when I read this because I was inside a modern seminary when all of this junk was going on. And it wasn't the media that was in there teaching me. And there weren't guys in with, with press passes uh, from the, the Italian press or from the New York Times who had given us classes. But it was priests who had immersed themselves in Vatican II, who were operating entirely within the system, who were reading uh, the works of approved modernist theologians. Among them Ratzinger. Among yes. them Ratzinger, yes. Uh, among them Ratzinger. Uh, who was always identified with the uh, liberal theologians. And these were the guys who were doing the damage. These were the guys who were questioning the uh, resurrection, who were denying transubstantiation, uh, you name it. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's absolutely absurd. And they were under, uh, under who? Well, under whose authority were these people operating? Well, they were operating not under the authority of Associated Press and the New York Times, but uh, th there was uh, there were council fathers who were bishops in our dioceses. Yes. So it's absolutely absurd to um, uh, shift the blame to something else. I mean, I'm still sputtering about it. It, it, it is well. I mean, when I read it, I thought, "What is he smoking?" <laughs> this is the most absurd thing that I have ever seen anyone say. That that this is a, you know the the journalists are responsible. This is so bad that you see their desperation. The desperation is twofold. One is to save Vatican II, because he says in that same speech that the true council is now finally emerging. Imagine after fifty years, yeah. the true council is emerging. So that means what we've had up to now is not the true council. It's only now emerging. Imagine what's going to happen now. And, and the uh -oh. other thing is to exonerate themselves of everything he mentioned, all the negative effect of Vatican II, which he mentions in the speech. This is a speech to the seminarians of Rome, both of them. 
and <laughs> and the no, I'm kidding. But uh, the this is a speech for the seminarians, and he mentions the closing of convents, the closing of seminaries, and and other you know things. He wants to exonerate himself of these things. He knows as perfectly as I do that Vatican II is responsible for all of it, but now he's going to blame it on the media. He's not responsible. I think it's very, very important that he's saying this as he's going out. That it's something like Ted Kennedy writing to Ratzinger just before he died, saying, I'm a great guy. I really deserve to be canonized, even though he was one of the most immoral beings that ever walked upon this planet. Uh, that he he says, you know, really, I'm a great guy, and you should think I'm a great guy, too. He wants to exonerate himself of all the filth and, and, and corruption that he sowed on this earth. And uh, the same is true of Ratzinger. He's, he's, you know, coming to the end of his life and seeing what 50 years of Vatican II has done. He was born in a time and raised in a time when the church was flourishing under Pius XI in Bavaria. He's thinking about all of this, and it, it has all crumbled down. It looks like the, the Roman Forum. Uh, when you look out on the Roman Forum, there's nothing but a few columns standing, and the rest of it is rubble. Uh, and, and he's looking at it and saying, you know, I didn't do this. It's the media. So it's those evil paparazzis with those cameras, you know, that took the wrong pictures, like took the lectorette picture that had no top on. It's their fault or taking a picture of the Buddha on top of the tabernacle at Assisi. See, it's the paparazzi's fault. And this is what we're supposed to think, that it's all their fault. And this is pure nonsense. As Father said, I lived it. I lived through the, all the changes. I was in the seminary. There were no journalists around. We were not even reading newspapers that much. This came from the priests who were in charge of the seminary, appointed by the bishops, appointed by Paul VI. And it wasn't journalists, for example, that brought into the sanctuary a rock band and played Lady Madonna on the Feast of the Annunciation. <laughs> no. the, not at all. That, that is the point in the seminary where I was just sitting there and decided this is not Roman Catholicism. I was appalled. And, and you know, I mean, it's just so absurd. It's like... it's. It's lunatical. It's like the ravings of a lunatic. Or maybe he has dementia or something. (laughs) Moreover, it's it's hypocritical, because when you look back at those days, um, and you see how the council was covered, who are the people who were holding the press conferences? It Mm -hmm. was the parity, the experts of the council, and the bishops uh, uh, from the left, the, the Rhine group, like Ratzinger, who were using the press to get their crazy ideas across. So, and it was uh, Paul VI himself who set up the, uh, uh, Paul, either John XXIII or Paul VI, who set up the Vatican press room, the, uh, the, the uh, Sala Stampa Vaticana, which in French comes over very nicely into the Sal uh, the, the Press Vatican, which, which could be interpreted the dirty Vatican press. <laughs> but in any case, the the uh, they they set up the the press agency so that communiques could be given out precisely to the press what they should write. So how can they blame it on the press? 
How could they blame you, it on the media? You, you you almost feel sorry for the press. You know, I think a lot of times <laughs> these days the press gets blamed for any in, in any circumstance where people want to avoid taking personal responsibility. I'll, I'll blame it on the media. Well, it's the media's fault. They blew this all up. It has nothing to do with my murder of my wife. I mean, if, if they just hadn't reported it, it wouldn't have been so bad. Um, I want to I want to pause here in, in our discussion and take another call. Director, see, this is a Hank calling from Georgia. And he has a pretty straightforward question, which is, what is the criteria to be a pope? Is that right, Hank? Yes. I've heard that even a layman could be elected pope. So is there any specific criteria? Does he have to be a priest? Does he have to be a bishop? You have to be a Catholic. That's number one. He has to be Catholic. <laughs> Catholic. I mean, uh, you go uh, back to the, some of the uh, you know, uh, things back there. Is there uh, You have to have the... the the use of reason, obviously, to be able to, to function in the office. So it's it's uh, uh, it's actually from the essential point of view, it's it's uh, a pretty low in terms of the the minimum that's required. So theoretically, a baptized uh, Catholic layman uh, who uh, you know had the use of reason uh, could be elected the Roman Pontiff. Uh, normally, it was someone who was elected from the uh, College of Cardinals who was a bishop. Uh, the last uh, cardinal who was elected who was uh, not um, uh, a bishop was um, Gregory the Sixteenth, I believe. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, th th as far as getting elected, uh, I mean, for example, uh, St. Ambrose was not even a Catholic. He was a catechumen when he was elected the, mm -hmm. uh, the or selected to be the Bishop of, of Milan. But what is required to achieve the power of the papacy is a whole other thing, and that is you, of course, must be baptized and you must profess the Catholic faith. You must intend the good of the Church. Uh, he, he must be faithful and and really mean the oath that he always took traditionally, which was to to defend the Catholic faith, uh, and uh, and that's why no matter what you want to say about the election of these individuals, the fact that they cannot reign and do not have the power to teach, rule, and sanctify the Church, is primarily the fact that they want to impose Vatican II upon the Church, which is a corruption of Catholicism. I think I, I have, have given many times the example of a president who on Inauguration Day would say, no, I do not swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Instead, I have a different Constitution, which I have uh, drawn up, and I will swear to uphold it. Now, what would happen? They would say, well, you know, you won the election, but you're not the president because you will not swear to uphold the traditional Constitution. And that's exactly what happens in the case of a of a pope, and as I said, whatever you want to say about his election, uh, if he will not uphold the traditional faith of the Catholic Church, there's no way that he can achieve that power. So that's, that's really the principal thing. I mean, he has to be consecrated a bishop, and you know, there's other things that that really uh, are are inconsequential in this context. The, the main thing is Vatican II, and they all accept Vatican II. Hank, does that answer yeah. your question? Yeah, yeah. Basically, it does. Uh, so many okay. commentators. <laughs> O'Reilly the other night, he, said, he says he's Catholic. He said, "No, the guy's got to be a priest, got to be a cardinal, and all this." And I just thought I'd heard somewhere, well, he he doesn't really have to be that. He doesn't yeah, know what he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, Bill Bill O'Reilly. I mean, the man the man's uh, 
notoriously not Catholic for all sorts of for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, he, he should stick to his whatever he talks about, but not he knows not. He's he's a, he's a nincompoop. Well, it's like most journalists, nobody challenges them when they make statements that are untrue, I guess, because they don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. You right. would be better so off the, watching theoretically, Jeopardy. Theoretically, then, uh, uh, a, a, a good Catholic who, who who says, yes, I'm a good Catholic, I want to defend the, the traditional Catholic faith, could be elected Pope. But practically, I guess that's never going to happen because the guys that elect them, don't see that or don't 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 think that same way. Well, they right. might say, "Oh, I I intend to uh, to uh, promote the Catholic faith," but they have to intend it objectively, and by that I mean they, they can't propose that what they think it is. They have to have the intention objectively of proposing what it is. Uh, so even they are not excused by good conscience in that. They can't say, "Well, you know, I I think that my constitution is is as good as the old one." They have to objectively adhere to what is the Constitution, the, the true teaching and disciplines of the Catholic Church. So if they don't, they cannot it, rule the Church. It's possible then, as years go on, there's not going to be any of them that, that know that. I mean, they're going to all be dead. <laughs> well, you know, well, the, grace the grace of God is more powerful. The grace of God is more powerful than sin and corruption and heresy. And God can raise up whomever he pleases. Yes, that's true. Okay, well, thank you so much for answering my question, and thank you for taking my call. Thank you. Good. Thanks. Um, I think that's that's one of the correctives, one of the reasons to have a show like ours is to have the actual Catholic voice on these matters discussing these issues. A lot of the feedback I get from listeners and people who write in tell me that it's refreshing to hear a Catholic voice discussing Catholic issues, and and Your Excellency and Father, I think you you provide a big big part of that. And I would say for those of you you know who wonder um, what the bishops uh, what the bishops and the priests do to earn their keep, I mean you heard His Excellency talking about the UCAT. He is trudging through that heretical garbage for you, so that you don't have to read it yourself. <laughs> So for that reason alone, you should be sending a contribution to the seminary. And, I and I'm not finished with that, that, by the way. So if you get a, a free moment, I'll go back to that. My stomach can't take any more, Your Excellency. We're going to have to we're going to have to move on to other things. So that, that's the 2012 was the uh, 50th anniversary of Vatican II, and that brings us to 2013, which is our year, and we have the resignation. And I want to again look at this academically from the aspect of if he were a true pope that this is a very problematic move, at least in my opinion, because it it creates a situation of tension between the the former pope and the new claimant. And uh, in, in a media, you know, frenzy, uh, you have, uh, whereas, you know, you have people like Jimmy Carter and, and past presidents commenting, at least American presidents, they don't, they try to stay away from commenting on current policy issues, but... But Ratzinger is an academic. He's going to be off writing books, and he's going to he's going to have a whole fruitful career ahead of him, where he's going to be writing more things. If this were if he were a true pope, this would still be a problematic move, and it sets up the papacy to become an office, not a vocation. So you can just I, I'm done. I'm tired. And for him, it, I think it's much less about this selfless act that has been praised by the Novus Ordo media. It's like, oh, look at him. He's he's recognizing uh, that he's too weak. It's just 
he's tired of dealing with all this, and he knows he's no good. So that's why he's stepping down, and I think that's the reality that we have to examine. Um, what say you? What say you, Your Excellency and Father? Hmm. Well, I mean, um, certainly, I mean, under the old code of canon law, uh, the Pope had the capacity to resign, so it was not, and, and, you know, we did speak at the beginning of the show about uh, some who actually did. Uh, So uh, there would seem to me to be nothing intrinsically wrong with it if it's something that's permitted by the law of the Church. The question is, uh, you know, is it... Uh, prudent to do was it uh, uh, prudent something that was actually prudent to do well normally the uh, Pope would live uh, in the Vatican and uh, his uh, contact with the outside world was relatively limited he would issue uh, bulls and decisions and so on through the Roman Curia and the Roman court uh, and even into the late 19th century, the Pope would receive, had sort of open audiences where almost anyone uh, could come and uh, be, re- be received. But the, so under circumstances like that, if a, a Pope uh, was operating under some sort of a, a physical uh, disability or became a little bit gaga, uh, his uh, apostolate and his work could be somewhat limited by those around him. So there, there, there was, as it were, a um, uh, uh, sort of like a safety valve for it. But uh, the difficulty now is that we live in uh, two things. We live in a media world where, thanks to JP2, everything is, uh, you're very visible. The post-conciliar pope, so-called, had been extremely visible. And you're uh, gone over with a microscope by the media, and you're expected to be public and to to function in public. So there's that difficulty. If if you're old and sick, you really can't do that effectively, and it gives the impression of you not being in control. And that was one of the impressions from the the uh, sort of the long illness of JP two that he was not in control. So the first thing is is that's changed on that, the idea of of functioning absolutely until your death, is the media. The second thing is uh, modern medicine. Uh, They can keep the body along uh, alive for a very long time uh, when your mind is gone. And that leads to to other problems. So it's, uh, from my point of view, I agree that it is in one sense a bad precedent, but uh, in the other, one can understand surely that uh, if it is now a, a media job and um, you can be kept alive for an indefinite period of time, a lot of harm could be done. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I mean, that would be my answer. So, it's a, it would be a question of prudential judgment. That's an awful lot for me. But, Your Excellency, any thoughts? Yeah, just well, I understand. I assume that he was just going to go back into a black and red cassock as a so-called cardinal, uh, and um, uh, you know, do live someplace in Rome. But it turns out he's going to uh, stay in the white cassock, still be Benedict the Sixteenth, still be Your Holiness, and live in a house behind St. Peter's Basilica. Now. Think of this. I mean, the the new Novus Ordo Pope comes, and, and he's got this, this 
guy in the backyard who's in a white cassock. I mean, if he goes for a walk, for example, in the Vatican Gardens, he might meet up with another pope, so to speak, sitting on a bench. He's in the white cassock, too, and he's your holiness. Like, hello, your, your holiness. Oh, how are you, your holiness? And 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 he's got a title and all. It's it's a very odd thing, and and you know is is certainly is. fraught with difficulties. And that that the way they're treating it is fraught with difficulties. I think it's extremely odd, and I think it's going to make the the new Novus Ordo Pope uh, be very uncomfortable, in my opinion. Wait, wait, so. wait till he meets Paul the Sixth in the garden too. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yes. But we're back and, to conspiracy. and everybody tied up in the in the uh, in the in the basement. I mean, all in the, the basement people. No, well, and I, the I, fact I, that you are correct. The fact that he's in the backyard and that he has uh, retained all of those titles. It is awful strange. Yes, it is awful strange. Yes. I mean, he's literally in his backyard. Well, maybe they'll have a new title, Patriarch of the West Side of the Vatican. <laughs> uh, and so I, 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 when when I look at that, um, your points are well taken, Father. I, I guess I, I accept, of course, that since, the ch- since church law allows it, that it's perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. But I think that the reasons that he is picking, I mean, especially given the example of the last guy uh, who went right to the bitter end, um, you, you can I, – I, I very much – tend to look at the papacy as this vocation, as something that you are called to do and that mm-hmm. God will give you what you need, even in a media age, to continue. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but I think that his reasons, I mean, he's not ending the schism. He's not trying to prevent uh, the takeover of the papal states. Um, there are a number of... I just, I just find the reasons, at least in my current view and with my limited access to whatever information mm-hmm. uh, are, is available, I, I, don't, I don't think it's the best precedent to set, but uh, but again, this is again oh, academic. For, for, if, if he were if he were the pope, he he's a novus ordo pope. I mean, right. we're not dealing with a Pius the twelfth or a Pius the tenth or or you know a Gregory the sixteenth here. We're dealing with a modernist who who you know is not even a, a bishop and who's a phony pope. Uh, who cares what he does? I really don't care. What he does. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't think it affects the true Catholic papacy in any way. He doesn't have it. You know, he, he's, uh, he's just some inhabitant of the apostolic palace. That's all he is. Uh, you know, together with the parakeet or something like that. I mean, he, he's, he's nothing. I mean, I'm glad to see him go. <laughs> well, tell us how you really feel, Your Excellency. <laughs> I'm hearing you talk as though, you know, this is sort of a tragedy for the papacy. This is a Novus Ordite Petrine apostolate or the Petrine ministry. This is not the papacy. Mm. This is the the head of the of the college of bishops that rules the church and he's he's the first among the bishops, as that UCAT says. Uh, and uh, going back to that thing, yes. uh, and he, you know, what of it if he resigns? I don't care. Do you care? <laughs> I, you, 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 your, your point's well taken, Your Excellency. Yeah. For, for, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, you are listening to Restoration Radio. Our topic today is the legacy of Benedict XVI, the years 2005 through 2013. 
Uh, and our guests are His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. We've just got a few minutes left, uh, Your Excellency and Father, and um, we're, we, we've covered our timeline from 2005 to 2013. I really want to focus on two issues in the little over 10 minutes that we have left in the show, which is what is the legacy going to say about his failure from 1988 to the present with the Society of St. Pius X and for the vaunted hopes of the conservatives that he was going to come in and be the German shepherd and clean house and be the bulldog, God's Rottweiler. Can you comment on those two points, SSTX and God's Rottweiler, uh, in in the long view uh, as we come into the end of his non-papacy tomorrow? As regards SSPX, uh, it, it's a, now it's clear it's a total failure. Uh, he uh, tried from 88 onward uh, through uh, using all sorts of tricks and all sorts of uh, inducements to uh, get them to go along with the negotiations. And it's gone back and forth and back and forth. And uh, now after his, uh, what, his eight years in office, uh, it's come to nothing, and it is the uh, we could say in a sense that it's a failure of uh, the ecumenism of Vatican II, because not only could he not um, reconcile, uh, say the um, the Lutherans and bring them uh, under the uh, big tent, but he couldn't even do it with people who are professedly Catholic. So it's it's a it's a failure on his part. And uh, that's how history will record it. Heaven only knows what will happen in the future. I doubt anyone, uh, any of his successors, would have the interest in the issue of the Society of St. Pius X and reconciling them that uh, Ratzinger did uh, before and after his election. So it's it's a complete failure. I also think that it's a failure uh, in his uh, attempt to give the stamp of approval to Vatican II by tradition. Uh, Again, uh, that is the overriding theme, if not the the main theme, of his so-called pontificate. It was to give Vatican II credibility as something continuous and homogeneous with Catholic tradition. And part of his program was to get that approval for Vatican II and the whole reform movement from the traditionalists from the successors of Archbishop Lefebvre, who was the, the single mo- the loudest voice, certainly in the episcopacy, to say that something is deeply wrong with Vatican II, and to provide a, a worldwide apostolate against Vatican II. Uh, to have reconciled that would have made a very pretty package, you know, to have had the... Uh, the hermeneutic of continuity, and, and now through the hermeneutic of continuity, we've reconciled these people who were disenchanted with Vatican II, and we're all very happy, and everything's wonderful. Uh, that was the program. Uh, we saw that, uh, you know, in that speech that we talked about, that 2005, Christmas of 2005 speech, which was quite early in his so-called pontificate. Uh, that was, I think, the overriding thing, the motu proprio, the... Uh, always presenting, a, a wearing, for example, the Baroque uh, vestments, the Baroque mitres. I mean, they must have had to dig into the bottom of the 
of the sacristan, uh, the, the sacristy drawers to get out some of that stuff. We haven't seen that stuff since Pius XII. I think uh, they broke into parts of the Vatican Museum, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you know, the, all of that image uh, of of this traditional person uh, and uh, cutting down on the topless business. The the uh, if you notice the you know there was really very little of of the at least as far as he was concerned not not in general not in not but where you know Vatican stuff where you had you know topless people and and other outrageous horrid things going on that that really got cut down severely. Uh, and I think that was all part of his program is uh, because he's intelligent to know, to know enough to know that if Vatican II turns out to be rupture historically, it is finished. Yes, yes. So I think that the failure to reconcile them is a big, big failure uh, in, in for Ratzinger. I think it's a major failure, uh, and it's a failure of ecumenism. There hasn't been a single group reconciled to the big tent since Vatican II, despite all sorts of participation in false worship, all sorts of compromises, the watering down of Catholic doctrine, heteropraxis, all sorts of evil things being done and permitted. No one has come near them. Well, that's not true, Your Excellency. Remember, we brought back the Anglicans. We didn't bring them back as a body. See, there hasn't been a single body of heretics or schismatics that has been brought back. And that's significant after 50 years of Vatican II. Certainly is. Well, then, it's uh, a failure. To the, uh, to the second question about him cleaning house, which that was your second question, wasn't it, Stephen? Yes, Father. And, and uh, I mean, he hasn't. Uh, the... Uh, um, you still have uh, on a global basis the basically the same level of modernist theological error that you had before. Uh, a few people got um, uh, the wrist slapped, but it's the same old thing. Well, and then you have the appointment of Gerhard Mueller too. I mean, if you're not not just. Hmm? Not just a, a staying in place, but moving forward by adding more more villains. Sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Uh, so it it never happened. Uh, it never happened. And the the restoration that people were uh, talking about with God's uh, Rottweiler supposedly being mm -hmm. their fa their favorite German Shepherd, it uh, uh, didn't happen, and it couldn't really happen under these circumstances because of the. Uh, Credibility, really, that the Novus Ordo Church has uh, has lost among its own members. People will not obey anymore. Mm -hmm. They sim uh, simply will not. So uh, nothing, from that point of view, has uh, has been restored. I remember when he was elected, the wanderer said, "Oh, this is the end of Kumbaya," mm -hmm. meaning that there would be no more outrageous. Novus Ordo liturgies, and yet we have seen unbelievable, unbelievably outrageous liturgies, like the Bishop of San Francisco giving communion, those paparazzis again, with that uh, picture giving communion to two homosexuals dressed up as nuns, sacrilegiously as nuns. 
uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Schoenborn with the balloons uh, and uh, you know various other uh, what was that one in Brazil I think it was where they had a clown mask with the traditional Roman vestments on uh, <laughs> and you know. But of course, that's the media council, so we don't, we can't count that. That's the media council. So I'm sorry for having brought it up. <laughs> so you know, it is not the end of kumbaya. Kumbaya for those for those who are not old enough, it was a, a, a typical song sung in the 1960s as part of the modernized liturgy. And so anybody that grew up in that era knows Kumbaya because they sang it all the time. It's, a, I think, a Swahili word, which means come near us or something like that. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so so that was the end of Kumbaya. It was not. It, it was just more of the same, more of the same corruption theologically, liturgically, and disciplinary corruption. I mean the the all of the surfacing of scandals. I mean, look at the the, the cardinal of of Edinburgh. You know, I mean, it just uh, how much more is going to surface from this whole period of corruption? Well, we'll just wait for the media to report on it. You're excellent. Well, yeah, it's all media. It's yeah. the media. Here we are talking on the media too, so we must be involved in it. <laughs> part of the problem. Yeah. Well, um, again, thank you so much for your time, Your Excellency, and Father, um, we've come to the end of our show. We did say this was the second of a three-part series. When we were conceiving of the idea for this um, series of shows, we said that we would do a short show after the uh, conclave has ended, which is apparently going to start almost immediately after the resignation. So there was a a notification yesterday that they don't have to wait two weeks because uh, the idea was we must have a pope in place by uh, Easter Sunday, which again plays to this idea that you need to have this prop in place. It doesn't matter if it was the right guy or if it's the whole if it's the Holy Ghost inspiring it. We just have to have someone in place, which uh, is this idea of a CEO election, unfortunately. Uh, mm. But we are going to do a short show um, after um, the conclave with whatever documentation we can find on whoever the new claimant will be. So we don't know when that show will be, but it will be sometime probably in the next two to four weeks if they have their deadline in place um, under their uh, locked keys, uh, locked, uh, locked doors inside the Sistine uh, Chapel. Let's hope they um, throw away the key. Yeah, hopefully throw away the key and, uh, well, <laughs> I would say some other uncharitable things. But uh, Now, Stephen, uh, one question. Are you going to go out today, uh, instead of with Palestrinas, to his patrons, maybe with Kumbaya? <laughs> well, you refer to, you know, the, the 60s. The young people like me, we know about that song because we sang it as an opening hymn to the Novus Ordo. So, so okay. uh, that, that's our familiarity with it. So don't think we don't know about that song, too. It's, it's in there with all that Marty Hagen nonsense that has plagued my memories ever since. Um, well, we, we will, unfortunately, go out with, we will go out with much better music. Uh, okay. Thank you all for, for joining us. I, uh, for those of you who'd like to find out a little bit more about um, the work of Bishop Sanborn, Father Chicada, all of the things that they're talking about today. We talked about lots of different heresies and lots of different things. You can go to traditionalmass.org, click on articles, and feel free to just sort of page through whatever your area of interest is. Click on there, and you're probably going to find an article that addresses your issues. And both of these, um, both of these clergy are available to you to answer your questions. Um, you can also write into truerestoration at gmail.com, and I'll direct 
I'll direct questions to both of them. Uh, thanks for listening, and again, thank you, Your Excellency and Father. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Oh, goodbye. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.